Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in this episode, I'm joined by someone who's going to tell me about a series of cataclysmic childhood camping experiences brilliantly evoked in her book, The Tent, The Bucket and Me. She's the actress, writer, presenter, Emma Kennedy. Welcome, Anna. Hello. Emma, 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 <laughs> Enema. Welcome to who? Enema. Welcome. Enema, Enema. Emma. <laughs> That reminds me of a story because I'm, my real name is Emma Williams yeah. and I wasn't allowed to be Emma Williams uh, when I was starting out because there was another Emma Williams. So uh, I put loads of names into a hat and the only name that was in the hat that was a family name was Kennedy. So that's like, quite weird that that one was pulled out. But I genuinely wrote in, because I just put in the surnames, I could have been Emma Royds, <laughs> I could have been Emma Dale... <laughs> I put all this dreadful, dreadful, and I could have been Emma. I did do an Emma M, Emma M, Emma M. But anyway, yeah, Emma, Enema. Just call me Enema for the rest of the podcast. Rain yourself in, Enema. I'd like to kick off by playing a clip from the audiobook read by your good self, following numerous failed holidays. Here you are, age nine, summing up your feelings. Holidays were in the hands of malevolent forces, hell bent on wreaking chaos at every turn. Holidays were assault courses of the mind and body, endurance tests designed to break spirits and shatter spleens. In my nine years on the planet, I had learnt one thing. Going on holiday was awful. (laughs) Were your holidays really that bad? Yes. Yes, they were. I mean, I tend to the view now that camping is national service for children. It's borderline child abuse. If Childline had been running when I was forced to go on summer holidays, Mm -hmm. I I would have been endlessly running down to the nearest phone box with a 2p, going, please, Esther Ranson, please, will you save me? Because this is abuse. It's abuse. I mean, this book is really a series of incredible disasters. So how much embroidering of the truth um, has gone on? It really is a pretty much carte blanche how it happened. I was blessed because obviously with the earlier chapters I was very young so I couldn't I would have been unable to remember that amount of detail. But what I did before each chapter was I went home to interview my mum and dad. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate in the regard that my dad had an incredible memory for small tiny details. And my mother had an incredible memory for conversations and arguments that she had had. And what would often happen was that that they would, unasked by me, they would actually start recreating the arguments that they had. So you were all born with a chatty gene? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My, My mother could talk anyone into the ground, could probably kill someone just through chat. (laughs) Like literally murder them. I I always used to feel incredibly sorry for anyone who was stuck on a train next to my mother because she would just fix them with a glare until she caught their eyeball. And then that was it. She was in like Flynn, just in. And she would not stop talking until they got to the destination, which which is fine if you were going just one stop. They once took a train across Europe and and they were were stuck with two Iranians. Who spoke no English. (laughs) He spoke no English. No, my mother just talked at them for seven days. So are these um, holiday experiences of your youth still haunting you now? 
they've damaged me so extensively yeah. that if I now go on a nice holiday, yes. I'm disappointed. Are you? <laughs> yes. Yes. I actively want terrible things to happen because I just think, well, that's a good story. I've, I've, I have had plenty of lovely holidays. Can't remember a single thing about them. Yeah, you want the disaster. So, but I think that's a particularly British thing, don't yes. you? That that we sort of embrace terrible holidays. So, did your analyst has he or she examined why you have this propensity to repeat that? I'm going to tell you something shocking. Okay, brace yourself. I've, listeners. N- I've never ever had psychotherapy. Well, you clearly <laughs> need it very badly. I, I, do you think I should go and get some? Do you think I need a proper analyst? Moving swiftly on, the title of the book features two key props without which there would have been no holidays and no book. Let's start with the tent. And please, can you describe it for me? The tent? Yes. Well, the tent, it was sort of a blue canvas. No, actually, it was the colour of depression. That that was the colour of the tent. Everything about the tent sort of said you are going to come away with an independent ecosystem growing somewhere on your body. It was sort of like being a Petri dish. It, it sucked damp into it. it. It was like a black hole of dampness. I mean, when I was a child, I mean, I thought the, the tent was enormous, but obviously, it, I mean, it, just, it wasn't, not not even remotely, although it did How have an inner it? tent. It had an inner tent. Mm-hmm. Three people could lie down. <laughs> and <laughs> mostly in water. And then there was an outer section. Feet? Yes, I, I'm like, I was like the child from Atlantis. Right. And there, there was an outer section which you could just about get three chairs into you know the fold down things that you're forever catching your finger in how i've still got 10 fingers is anyone's guess and then in the corner there there was a dark recess in the tent (laughs) that that was not unlike what you imagine the gateway to hell being like and in that corner was the bucket the bucket. The bucket. Okay. Your first object, which has shaped your book. Now, I know there's plenty to discuss here, but first let's hear you introduce the moment your dad unveiled it to you, your mother and your grandmother. Here comes the bucket. Here you are, said my dad, handing my mother the pink plastic bucket. What's this? said Brenda, staring at it. Toilet, muttered dad, who then unfolded four chairs and placed them in a line. You want me to piss in this whilst you all sit there and watch? asked Brenda. What am I? The evening's entertainment? Well, we'll all go and stand in the bedroom compartment and look the other way. That's what we'll do. Come on, ma'am. Um, let's go. We'll let mummy have a wee. Come on. I need to go as well, announced ma'am as we trooped off to the other side of the tent. Right, said Dad, then you can go second, and I may as well, so I'll go third. Do you want to have a go? He looked down at me, with eyes like plug holes. I nodded. Good, he declared, as if this was going very well. Well, that's that sorted. (laughs) I'd never weed in a bucket before in my life, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was quite determined that I was going to do this on my own. And uh, so the family all trooped off. I looked at the bucket and I thought, well, this is just going to be the same as a toilet. So I sat on it. And uh, I didn't realise that, the, that, that, the, that the, the, the circumference of the bucket was greater 
than my little bum. And my knee sort of concertinaed <laughs> up into my chest and I sunk very slowly down towards two generations of my family's bodily byproducts. And my mother sort of turned around and saw what was happening mm-hmm. as I was being sucked downwards into this bucket. But I thought, well, no, I can get myself out of this. And I wriggled. And, of course, the bucket was not on even ground. And we tipped over and I was absolutely covered in urine, absolutely covered in it. Everything was a catastrophe as far as my mother was concerned. But they stripped me down and they made me go out into the the slashing rain and I had to run round the car once naked (laughs) and then then come back in. And my dad took me up in a towel and... (laughs) And at which point my, my grandmother said, well, it could have been worse. I could have had a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Why was your grandmother on a camping holiday with well, you? Whose idea was that? Well, exactly. My my dad, for reasons I will never understand, decided that it, to cheer up his, his recently bereaved mother who had diabetes and a heart condition, mm. that he was going to take her camping to the Gower <laughs> Peninsula. That fixes it. That's a panacea for oils, isn't it? I mean, she comes across as an absolutely extraordinary character, as do both your parents. Can you fill in a little about your background for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, My parents were both from extremely poor backgrounds. My father was one of seven children. He was from a small Welsh uh, mining village in the Rhondda Valley. And he didn't have a pair of shoes until he was... 14. He just had a pair of Wellingtons that had been given to him because someone up the street had died. And he. <laughs> this is Dickensian. Yes, it was, it was Dickensian. And he was apparently a, a brilliant, brilliant rugby player to accept that he was actually had a trial f- to play for Wales. He played rugby in Wellingtons and he was still the best player that, that they had. So that is a rugby playing sized specimen. Yeah, no, he's, he's quite he's quite short actually. He's he's only about five foot seven. He was a wing. He was fast. Ah, okay. So um, he could fit in the tent with yeah, grandma. Yes, so he could fit and... in the tent. Yeah. So what kind of holidays did your parents have? They didn't really go on holidays because the, number one, they couldn't afford to go on holidays. I think in my Welsh family, they would once a year there would be a a pit outing. Uh, <laughs> To real. Rubbing coal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A pit outing to somewhere like real where, the, the, you know, they might, if they're lucky, get some cockles in a cup. <laughs> that, that was sort of the top end so what you're of saying their is treats. That, that everything was, it was an economic decision to go camping. Oh, yeah. No I mean, there was, there was no way we could have afforded to go anywhere where you had to sort of, you know, pay. We could, uh, hotels, what? No. I mean, th- that's the, the stuff of myth and legend. Right hotels so it it literally was camping or or nothing but what was so glorious about my parents is especially my father is that that they genuinely believed that they were being aspirational by going camping to the Gower Peninsula and and of course that aspiration then then kicked off a plenty when we started actually going to France which was quite that was all down to my mother yeah she she had a a mild obsession with with trying to get to the south of France for her that was her Xanadu. She <laughs> she she genuinely believed that maybe the rest of her life would be like walking through Clover if she somehow got to the south of France. And did she speak French? No, not a but word. That, that didn't stop her. Not a word. No. no. no nothing ever stopped my mother. Nothing. <laughs> 
So I enjoyed your description, enormously, of the ritual of packing up before a camping holiday. But there came a time when your parents decided you needed something bigger to transport all your kit. So which brings me to your next object, Anima. Now, what is that, please? It's Bessie. Bessie the what? Bessie the Land Rover. The the glorious, glorious, glorious Land Rover that we loved as if she was one of the family. And my father, I mean, we couldn't afford a 12-seater Land Rover. I mean, let's just say that from the off. When my when my my father had a habit, whenever my mother wasn't looking, of buying pork pies, atlases, and in this instance, A a Land Rover. And he came home with it and we all just stood staring at it. And it, 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 was, it was crazy. There were three yeah. of us. We didn't need a 12-seater Land Rover. It was absolute nonsense that we had one. My mother needed persuading, but not that much persuading because even she could sort of look at this magnificent vehicle and, and see all the, the hopes and the dreams. The possibilities. That, and the possibilities that were suddenly endless because we had a 12-seater Land Rover. So with such a swish new motorised arrival, your mother decided it needed an appropriate welcome into the Kennedy family. So here's how you describe what happened in a clip from the audiobook. Right then, said my dad, grinning because he was enjoying riding a rare crest of familial popularity. What shall we call it? Do you think it's a boy car or a girl car? Girl car! I shouted with a small jump into the air. It's quite posh, said my dad, staring at his new pride and joy. We could call her Tabitha. I think she's the queen of cars, said my mum, folding her arms and dropping her head to one side. Let's call her Bessie. Good Queen Bessie. Bessie! I yelled because I liked it. Yeah! Okay, said Dad. So you do the naming and I'll throw the bottle. My mother, who was always delighted to provide any sort of theatrical entertainment, stood on her tiptoes, pursed her lips, and in a faux aristocratic voice said, I hereby name this car, this wonderful car, Bessie. God bless her and all who drive about in her. Dad, taking that as his cue, chucked the baby sham bottle at the side of the car towards the front. It should have hit the flank, but instead it struck the corner of the front wheel arch, bounced straight off, and boomeranged back to hit me square on the forehead with a thwack. Startled by the impact, I fell backwards into my mother, who caught me, took one look at my head, and screamed. There was blood everywhere. Has she lost an eye? wailed my mother, gripping me by the shoulders. Oh, God, Tony, she's lost an eye! Of course, I hadn't lost an eye, but I um, I spent the next three days with a sanitary towel wrapped around my forehead. So Bessie really did become part of the family. Oh, right? yeah, very much so. We couldn't have countenanced going anywhere without When she finally her. gave up the ghost right oh, at the end. Oh, my gosh. It was very, you write about it very movingly, well, which I've never read that about a motor car before. Well, because she, she probably was like the fourth member of our family. And, and I think because we'd been through so many scrapes... And Bessie was always our safe haven. Yeah. That when we realised that that was it, the car was dead. The car had to be taken off to be killed. Having having survived everything, the storms, the, the, the crash with the Germans, everything. <laughs> this 
fateful ceremony made it into your TV series, The Kennedys, based on the tent, the bucket and me, and for which you wrote the screenplay. Mm. But camping isn't really the hub of this series, is it? No. They asked me if I wanted to adapt tent the bucket to me and I I said yes I would like to do it but I went away and thought about it long and hard and the book is about the disastrous attempts of of one family to go on holiday and you can have a one note in a book Mm -hmm. or or just the same theme in a book (laughs) but you can't do that in a sitcom I don't think and I thought well you can't have you know, six half-hour episodes that are just a different holiday every single week because it will it will get repetitive and boring. So I started thinking about how I could adapt it that I'd keep the joy of the book, mm-hmm. but also it was a great opportunity for me to put in stories that I couldn't put in the book because the, the book was quite restrictive because I was only allowed to talk about holidays. And your parents didn't mind you writing about them? No, they loved it. My, my parents, uh, when the book came out... Mm-hmm. I mean, they were very much part of it as... as yeah, because you interviewed before, them. I interviewed them. But when the book came out, yeah. they would go to Waterstones yeah. in Hitchin <laughs> and they would stand next to it and wait, wait like crows. <laughs> wait. <laughs> come pick one up. Someone to come pick it up. Yeah. And then my mother would step forward and go, um, we're Brenda and Tony from the tent, the bucket and me. Would you like us to sign that? <laughs> And she talked them into a sale, no doubt. Yes, of course. Yeah. Of course she talked them into a sale. I understand that you, you interview them in order to help fit in all the detail and the background of the book. Yes. But how do they feel about you then writing about what happened in your life outside of the holidays? Oh, they, 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 they literally mind. couldn't be more excited. I mean, my, my father, I mean, it's very sadly, my, my mother died mm-hmm. uh, three weeks before we filmed the pilot and that, that was tough. And it's a great sadness to me that she will never see it but I I took all the scripts uh, and literally read them to her on her deathbed Mm -hmm. and she lay there and this this was practically the last thing she said to me before she died she she stopped I was reading something out and she stopped me (laughs) and put her hand on my forearm and said Emma you're going to have to change that name your father still sees her in Sainsbury's (laughs) (laughs) Time to rake over some more painful memories now, Emma. And it's off to a country that dominates your childhood holidays, France, which, of course, we talked about earlier. And your mother, she was the driving force oh, to holiday uh, in France. I mean, you absolutely. said earlier that she was she had this mythical yeah. fantasy about what it was like. Yeah. How did think... she cope with the reality of it? <laughs> Whenever I think about this, and, and people often say to me, you know, after these disastrous holidays Mm -hmm. that you had why did you go back and it was just this endless seam of optimism my mother was all about you know at some point we've got to get this right it it was the never stopping trying but my father was the exact opposite I think he had had enough he had had enough after the shellfish holiday after Fouy de Med (laughs) as we like to call it (laughs) Uh, he had he had had a skinful, the shellfish yeah. and the rotisserie chicken, yeah. which are your two objects right here, yeah. and they're inextricably linked to France. Please, can you show them to me? Okay, not so, too close. All right, so here, Richard, yeah. you can see mm-hmm. a a plate uh, full of 
raw shellfish. Crustacea, yeah. Yeah, and there, there's an aroma coming off that, isn't there? <laughs> it certainly is, in it's, an, it's unrefrigerated it's, studio. It's, yeah, it's, it, it's a ripe smell. Now, if you compare the, the plates that yes. we have here, the, the raw shellfish mm-hmm. versus... The golden the chicken, cooked the, yep. co- the, co- the cooked, delicious-smelling chicken. Now, yes. we found ourselves on on this campsite, and it had a camp shop. Right. And in the seventies, in Stevenage, you know, shops did not do rotisserie chickens. Richard, there was no such thing as a rotisserie chicken. Frozen it, in a bag. It, you know, it was it, the only chickens you got were frozen yep. in a bag or in a tin. If it, if it was in a tin, tin yeah, if it was in a tin, it was fine. Yeah. But outside of a tin, you know, that's whoa, that, that, that's yeah. that's some sort of madness. Mm. So in this in this shop, in this incredible camp shop, there was a cabinet which had rotisserie chickens cooking, and the aroma. That was coming up because they had Incredible. herbs stuffed under the skin. I mean, it was unimaginable luxury. And my father just suddenly sort of had one of those light bolt moments as if he'd been literally shot through the heart by Eros's arrow. A chuck of by By a chicken. And he, he really thought, I, this is it, this is it, this is our moment. This is the moment where this family gets to have a moment of glory. We are going to have a rotisserie chicken. <laughs> so we went in as a family to, to witness this incredible spectacle. My dad was suddenly, he was going to be a hero. He genuinely thought, this is it, I am going to look like a hero. And he went up and he didn't have very good French. But he could speak a few words of French. Mm-hmm. So he went up and he went, Je voudrais un poulet. And the girl just went, Not. 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 And dad, dad sort of stared at her and just went, Un poulet, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> and she went, Not. Not. <laughs> Not. 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 And uh, and we couldn't understand why she wouldn't let us have a poulet. And then a French woman came in behind us and rattled something off in French. And the girl gave her a rotisserie chicken. And now this incensed my mother. Absolutely incensed. My mother then accused the shop girl of racism. She mm-hmm. she said she said that the, in English because mm, you couldn't do it in French. Yeah. And you couldn't understand why the French people come in and they're allowed the rotisserie chickens, but the English people want the rotisserie chicken and they're not allowed the chicken. And the the thing that was galling was that the woman came in and she took three chickens (laughs) in front of our eyes. And so my dad now was like going, you know, we we just want a poulet. A poulet. See, vous play. Not. We went in every single day asking for a rotisserie chicken. And it was not every single time. And then someone would come in and take the chicken and walk out with it. I mean, it was galling. It was galling. Anyway, it turned out that uh, what we hadn't comprehended was that you had to pre-order the chicken the day before. <laughs> and the chickens were for, for picking up. So they, 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 you couldn't they go in order. and just... They were to order. Well, if the chicken had you salivating raw shellfish had a rather different effect, as we're about to find out. And here's a clip from the audiobook in which your family, aiming for a sophisticated French meal, feels somewhat let down, shall we say. Eh, 
Voilà, announced the waiter with a flourish. Fruit de mer. And with that, he placed the large silver platter in the centre of the table. We all looked at it. Oh, no, whispered my father. No. Oh, God, no. It was a veritable scrum of shellfish. Clams, oysters, winkles, scallops, and the dreaded mussels. And all of it was raw. I'm not eating any of it, declared Tony, with a definitive shake of the head. No way. Forget it. Not if I was starving. But we can't eat all this on our own, said Brenda, overwhelmed. You'll have to have some of it. If you just avoid the mussels, you'll be fine. You just got unlucky. You just had a bad one. I'm not joking, said Tony, sweeping a dismissive hand across the iced platter. I'm not putting one single thing in my mouth. Not one. Mummy, I said, peering into the heap of shells. That one just moved. That's because it's still alive, explained my mother, with a touch of the Dunkirk spirit about her. That's how they like to eat things in France. It's the French way. Can't we eat them the English way? I asked, feeling a little uneasy. Do we have to eat them like the French? Yes, said my mother, picking up a clam. I'm afraid we do. Although I wonder if we should just pretend to eat it. Maybe if we just eat one of the scallops and then make it look as if we're eating the rest. Perhaps that's for the best. If we scoop everything out from their shells and then put them in a napkin and then Daddy can put them in his pocket, perhaps... We should do that. What do you think, Tony? My position on this matter is clear, he said, arms folded. I'm not putting one solitary living creature in my mouth ever again. Ever again, Brenda. Not even if my life depended on it, or yours for that matter, or Emma's. I would happily let you both die before eating another mussel, or a scallop, or an oyster, or whatever other sea shit they've got on that plate, actually die. Do you understand? Oh. I mean, it was just awful. And he was so sick. He was so sick. You know, like the way when you've had bad experiences with food, you always remember that 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 mm-hmm. taste that, that you had in your mouth, the, the thing that made you ill. He still refers to it as being worse than a dog turd. <laughs> It's, it's very immediate and vivid, the way that you have recreated your family when you have read the audio book. What, what was that experience like, doing that? When I was writing uh, the book, the one thing I wanted was for it to feel very immediate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's You've why... Succeeded. Thank you. And that's why I put so much dialogue in the book. And I think one of my personal favourite books of all time is my family and other animals. And I think you can absolutely see the influence of that book in in Intent the Bucket of Me, in that what Gerald Durrell was brilliant at doing was describing things that that were happening with family, but he put lots of dialogue in. And so it it doesn't feel like a non-fiction book. It feels like a fiction book. Yeah. I, I suppose I, I take it as a, as a great compliment when people ask me if it, it, a work of fiction. It's not. It's a work of non-fiction. But I've written it, as so it reads like fiction. So your audiobook is a triple whammy of all your talents being 
embedded in that. We've had an interesting spread of objects so far. So what is next, Emma Amina? This is an interesting thing because people are, are very aware of the damage that sun can do nowadays. Yeah. But, of course, in the 70s, suntan lotion was, was virtually unheard of. I don't know whether you had a, a skincare routine. Well, as you where, can see, I look where, like an old leather handbag <laughs> because I've never put any on. <laughs> when you were growing up. But, I mean, it didn't even occur to anyone in my family to apply this mythical cream called suntan lotion. You've got to remember as well is that is that seeing any sort of sun was sort of like I imagine the Incas if they'd seen a UFO yeah. would have would have felt you know to a child a British child seeing blue skies and real proper heat it was there it's was definitely phenomenal. something magical about the whole thing. So I have to say that listening to your audiobook as you described your sunburn was, I mean, it was really wince-inducing and your dad didn't escape either. No. Your sunburn moment. The fact was, I was burnt to a crisp. My mother, taking off her sunglasses to take a better look at me, prodded at my shoulder, only for a bright white fingerprint to appear for a fleeting second. It was her touch test for sunburn and I'd passed with flying colours. My skin was a livid crimson and was giving off pulsing, radioactive heat. I hadn't moved in about two hours, and so as my mother insisted that we all leave and return to the campsite, I was unaware of the full extent of the agony to come. My skin, racked tight by the sun, screamed with pain at every bend and step, and when it came to sitting back in the Land Rover, I was so sore and sensitive that all I could do was perch on the edge of the seat, trying desperately not to touch any surface. Brenda was livid with the pair of us. Dad's shoulders were a mass of bubbling blisters, while I looked as if I'd been submerged in a vat of red paint. Don't expect any sympathy from me, she declared, waving a hand in our direction. What did I say? Put some cream on. You've only got yourself to blame. The, the sunburn incident yeah. ended with me being placed on a camp bed. I, I developed a dreadful fever and um, a small crowd gathered uh, around me because obviously, you know, there's nothing to do on campsites. So someone being laid out in the middle of the day on a camp bed was, was quite the event. And there was, a, it was about 15 or 20 people gathered just standing in their speedos with their arms crossed staring at me. And a Dutch woman came over and said, oh, uh, in in Holland, I'm a nurse. Would you like me to take a look at her? And, of course, my mother was beside herself with, with gratitude. I said, oh, thank would you? Thank you so, so much. And she came over to me, and I was lying on my back, and she flipped me over, and without a hello or a handshake... She pulled down my bikini bottoms and stuck a thermometer up my lady's... Excuse me. <laughs> Someone at the back of the crowd clapped. Literally. Like an applause. Uh, Appl uh, applause. I'm now lying with a thermometer sticking out, sticking out of my bum. ass, mm. And she pulls it out and then goes, Oh, yes, she's hot. <laughs> 
Okay. This <laughs> I mean, is a perfect, perfect moment to ask you. What is the ratio of laughs in that were, did you laugh a lot when all these disasters were happening to you or was it in retrospect or did you approach every holiday thinking, oh, my God, here we go on sort of another disastrous I, I think when you're in the moment of it, yes. it it's probably horrible. Yes, as a you thermometer know, the, the, is being there's, plunged. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, like, horror. properly, properly horrible. But then there, there were moments like the time we, we found ourselves in Paris and the, this was at the tail end of yet another catastrophic holiday. And we rounded a corner and we saw a man with his penis hanging out of his trousers and it it had a, a Galois cigarette inserted under the foreskin, which and oh and God. it was smoking. And my dad, of it was. my uh, my dad, sort of stopped in his tracks, and you could see flitting across his face. He was like, "How how do I explain this?" And he just put a very comforting arm around me and just went, "The French are mad on smoking, Emma." And that and that was it. And that that was how that that was explained. And then we walked up to Montmartre, thinking, no, we, we need to sort of lift our spirits and 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 go to something sort of edifying and and uplifting. So we'll go to Montmartre. Mm-hmm. So we went up there. And we and it was very hot. And we we sat down. And a woman approached us and just pulled up her skirt and urinated in front of us. And at that point, my that was the moment my father broke. That was it. And he just very quietly said, "Can we go home now?" Oh, <laughs> that was it. But but that I do remember. We laughed all the way back. Well, that's a perfect bookend because we began our chat with you talking about peeing in a bucket in yes. a row with your granny in the tent. Yes. So, do you ever go camping now? Don't be insane. No, no, no. no. You, you will never get me in a tent again as long <laughs> as I live. I've done my time. Not I, even I, glamping. I. I no, not even glamping. Okay, no. I'm with you on this. No, absolutely no. with you on absolutely this. Absolutely, sand in the no. crack, water in the no, oh, nothing. No, no, no. Okay, so as a battle-hardened camper of your, what would your key bit of advice be to prospective family campers apart from don't do it? Well, it would just be just be that. Don't do it. Just don't don't, don't go. Do I tell you, if you want your children to turn, you know, to not be scarred for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you've got two options. You either accept that your children will be scarred for life mm-hmm. or you hope that they will one day be able to turn them into memoirs that, that you know, could be turned into TV series. So it, there's swings and roundabouts. Perfect. Which brings us to the end of this episode of the Penguin Podcast. Anna Ona, thank you very, very much indeed. You've been an absolute champ. Thank you. My pleasure. We went on holiday by mistake, Richard. I wish I had written that. (laughs) (laughs) From Penguin Random House Audio. According to Yes is the hilarious new novel written and read by Dawn French. Rosie Kitto, an eccentric 38-year-old primary school teacher from England, finds herself in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a place with its own rigid code of behaviour. Click, clack. Rosie hears the approaching footsteps as she's hurriedly trying to wring out the rain from the cuffs of her sodden jacket. Her attempts to dribble only onto the New York Times are futile. The drops refuse to fall tidily. This is renegade rain, Weather which just will not behave, even when it's debuting inside the library of a posh Upper East Side apartment.
With the immense confidence of only a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Glenn Wilder Bingham enters the room. She is here. Rosie tries hard to remember that this would be a good time to heed her nan's advice to her when she was young, namely that you really don't need to show every single tooth in your mouth when you smile. She can't help herself. She does it now, just like she did it then, to brighten matters when the moment could potentially be tricky. Rosie is a radiator. She will always risk an over-smile to channel some warmth into the room, even if it doesn't work. She's a megawatt optimist, so now she really smiles, desperately showing lots of teeth. But Rosie has met her match in Glen, an experienced smile withholder who can snuff out Rosie's kind of bright joy in a millisecond. Hello, beams Rosie, hopefully, smilefully. Glen surveys the dripping Brit nods almost imperceptibly and places herself on one of the faded daffodil sofas. Somehow, without any instruction, Rosie knows full well that she's not invited to sit down, so she remains awkwardly rooted to her square of the newspaper. Lovely flat. Really amazing. Lovely. Yes, confirms Glenn quietly and adds as a corrective footnote. Apartment. Of course... Apartment, duh, Rosie counters, generously indicating what a dolt she must appear to be. According to Yes, available now on iTunes and Audible. <laughs>